Isaac Watts, um, he lived from 1674 to 1748. He wrote the first song that we sang today and many others that you know. Um, he's rightfully considered by many to be the, the father or even the godfather of uh, English hymnody, English hymn writing. In my opinion, I believe that Isaac Watts is the best Christian hymn writer of all of, in all of Christian history, uh, except, of course, writers of the Psalms and various other hymns that are found in the Scripture. Um, in 1698, on his 24th birthday, Isaac Watts preached his first sermon at Mark Lane Church in England, um, which was a very famous, at that time, nonconformist church they were known as. Um, and the previous, one of the previous pastors included a man by the name of John Owen, who was the foremost theologian uh, of the post-Reformation era, of those 1600s. And Owen's widow, John Owen's widow, still attended the church when Isaac Watts stood up to preach in this, on his 24th birthday. Well, Watts, who would go on to become an English congregational minister, a theologian and a writer, he was, as I said, one of the most um, prolific hymnists, and he penned about 600 hymns, 600 what were called sacred songs, and so in so doing this, really, he forever changed the course of English language hymnody, the singing of congregational um, songs. Apparently, he began writing hymns in his youth when he was still very young. And the story goes that one day when he returned home from church and complained about the poor quality of the singing in the congregation, at that time they were singing uh, metrical psalms. Um, he was challenged when he was complaining about it. He was challenged by his father, try and produce something better. He did. And Watts's hymns still appear in every hymnal, every one that I know of. In fact, our hymns of grace, these that we use, contain 13 songs by Isaac Watts. Uh, the celebration hymn, no, there's 18 in that one. In the celebration hymnal that we used to use, we still have, and we pull them out once in a while, there are 13. So there's 18 in these, 13 in the celebration hymnal. And the new Trinity Psalter, which is uh, the Trinity Psalter hymnal, which has uh, all of the Psalms and then a bunch of other hymns, that one has 22 by Isaac Watts. Well, back in those days, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, books were much harder to come by. And so there weren't many churches that had uh, hymnals that would just sit in the pews all week. If they had hymnals, people bought them themselves and would bring them back and forth each week. But on top of that, during the Reformation, which had taken place over the previous hundred or so years, um, the, the Reformers had reintroduced congregational singing to churches. And so basically, at that time, when churches would gather, they would simply sing the psalms set to well-known tunes, uh, meters, just sort of... Um, so, so like when we sing, and we haven't done this in a little while, but we'll sing Psalm 32 to the tune of Just As I Am. Or we might sing Psalm 100 to the tune of the doxology. The English church would do that every Lord's Day. 
One of the hymns that Watts wrote and is in our hymnal is actually a paraphrase of Psalm 23. In fact, many of his earlier hymns were simply uh, the Psalms in his own words. And the name of this one is called, it's, it's My Shepherd, You Supply My Need. It's number 175 in our hymnal. And it dates uh, from 1719. And, and listen to the words to this. And listen for the familiarity of Psalm 23 in these words. My shepherd, you supply my need. Most holy is your name. In pastures fresh, you make me feed beside the living stream. You bring my wandering spirit back when I forsake your ways. You lead me for your mercy's sake in paths of truth and grace. When through the shades of death I walk, your presence is my stay. One word of your supporting breath drives all my fears away. Your hand in sight of all my foes does still my table spread. My cup with blessings overflows. Your oil anoints my head. Your sure provisions, gracious God, attend me all my days. Oh, may your house be my abode and all my work be praise. Here would I find a settled rest while others go and come. No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. The last verse of Psalm 23 says this, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He puts it, No more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. Like a child at home, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, John chapter 10, I want to read... uh, Again, 1 through 18, we read this last week, uh, this whole section, but I want to read it again so we understand the context. So we're going to be looking, uh, beginning in verse 11, we'll see how far we get, but we're going to start in verse 11, but I'm going to read beginning in the first verse, because we're going to have to do a little bit of um, foundation laying this morning. So John 10, 1, truly, truly, I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. But this is the reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. Help us to understand these things that you would say to us here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout this teaching, Jesus, if you've been with us and kind of paying attention here these last uh, few weeks as we've looked at John chapter 10, Jesus is clearly comparing himself to the Pharisees. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that the, the Pharisees are nowhere in the Old Testament. In fact, they were, they were a tradition that developed during the, the intertestamental period, that, that 400 years of, of God's silence, we often say, between the Old and the New Testament. And the point was, and the reason that I brought that up last week, is that the, their authority over the people of Israel... The Pharisees' authority over them was actually illegitimate. It was not given by God, in other words. And even those Pharisees, who who may have been and may have happened to be priests or Levites of the tribe of Levi, they had overstepped their bounds. And the problem with all of this was that they did not enter into the sheepfold by the gate, by the door. They rejected Jesus Christ. And he was showing them that as he's walking through this chapter, he's actually showing them that again and again and again. Throughout the Old Testament, um, God has harsh words for false shepherds. He has curses for those who who harm his sheep and, and cause them to scatter. Jeremiah, for example, in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, he, he lays out this curse and he actually uses the word woe. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock, have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to your evil deeds, declares the Lord. The problem is, the problem today that we see, is that so many do not believe that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Too many don't believe that. That's from Hebrews. And so these Pharisees, they continue to reject Jesus, but Jesus isn't done with them yet. He's not done comparing himself to them, and and yet... Even in this, because he's comparing himself to them and because this is Jesus, Jesus frequently says and does the unexpected. If you expect Jesus to do one thing, he's almost always going to do something different than that. And he began explaining this allegory by saying, I am the door. Remember, the, the first five verses of this chapter, so John 10, 1 through 5, are told as an allegory, as a figure of speech, John calls it. And, and then in verse 6, it says that they don't understand it. They, they miss all of it. They miss the point of it. 
And then from verse 7 down through verse 18, Jesus expands on the imagery and he kind of moves things around a little bit. We're going to see that some today. And he makes himself, however, the focal point of the entire story, of that allegory, of that, of that figure of speech. But the other images kind of move around a little. He begins in this very unexpected place. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, but he begins in this unexpected place. I am the door. So why would Jesus claim to be the door or the gate to the sheepfold? Again, we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not going to re-preach that. But the answer to this lies in this next section where Jesus makes his next I am statement. See, understood by everybody there is that the sheep are the people of God. That's not in question. We understand that, that in this allegory, the sheep are the people of God. Uh, Jesus himself is Jewish, and he's talking to Jewish people. In fact, he's talking to Jewish, the Jewish leadership, self-appointed uh, leadership. And for the Jews, access to the sheepfold, access to the people of God, was through circumcision. And this is, this is rooted, you remember this from our study of Genesis in Sunday school, this is rooted in God's covenant with Abraham. So Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 9, says this, And God said to Abraham, As for you... You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. So it goes on. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the door, the access to the, to the sheepfold of God was through being born into or even converting to Judaism, to Jewishness, converting to, to become one of Abraham's children, and then keeping God's commandments, keeping God's law. That's what they thought the door was. That's what the Pharisees thought the door was. Now stay with me here because this is still a, still a theological hot topic by the time we get to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is what is called the Jerusalem Council. And the chapter opens with this. Acts 15, the first couple of verses says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is, these who are Gentiles, they're teaching the brothers this, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So do you have to become Jewish in order to become a believer? 
Do you have to convert to Judaism before you can become a Christian? But the question is, why are we talking about this here? After all, this, in this allegory, clearly we are meant to see Jesus as the shepherd. That's what we're supposed to talk about today. I am the good shepherd. Well, the reason that I wanted to bring this up is because the sheepfold is bigger than anybody assumed. It is bigger than the Pharisees could even imagine as he's telling them these words. It is bigger than his disciples understood. Remember, he's walking around in Jerusalem saying these things. Chapters 6, 7, 8, he's been at the temple. The sheepfold is so much bigger than any of them are assuming. And the entrance to the sheepfold is so much different than any of them understood. And so at that Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, as they're debating the door of the sheepfold, essentially, Peter proclaims this. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, he says this in verses 7, beginning in verse 7. Peter says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, by Peter's preaching, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? They, They can't obey the law. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And then James, a little bit later, he agreed and he issued this ruling beginning in verse 14. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with with this, the words of the prophets agree. So he is saying to them, Peter's preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and even the Old Testament agrees that this is going to happen. And then he quotes several passages from the Old Testament. He puts them all together and he says, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, James says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. His point and my point as we look at this is is this. Christ, Jesus Christ, the door, has opened the tent of David to the remnant of mankind, bringing salvation to Jews and Gentiles, to all who would enter by the door and be saved and go in and out and find pasture and have life abundantly. And so with all of that imagery of of pasture, imagery of abundance, and and imagery of the 23rd Psalm and, and Ezekiel 34 that we've talked about over the last few weeks, with all of that imagery of being led in paths of righteousness for His name's sake, 
The image of no more a stranger nor a guest, but like a child at home. With all of that fresh in our minds, we we turn now to Jesus' next and and certainly one of his most popular or well-known I am statements. He says, I am the good shepherd. I, I am the good shepherd. Now, just like he did earlier there in verses 7, 8, and 9, uh, when he said, I am the door, he makes the statement twice. So he says, I am the good shepherd in verse 11, and then again in verse 14. But in the middle of those two statements, he makes another comparison. And this is where I said it, it moves around a little bit. I want to look at the comparison first. It's verses 12 and 13. So just listen to this. I hope that you can follow me. <laughs> Verse 12 said, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So we need to talk about this hired hand first. Now, thieves and robbers, from the beginning of this chapter... Thieves and robbers are obviously wicked. Everybody agrees on that. But hired hands are not necessarily wicked. Hired hands aren't... Some of you are bosses and you have hired hands. Many of you are hired hands in one way or another. We would be thankful that not all hired hands are wicked. Um, In this analogy, in these verses... These hired hands are just simply more committed to their own well-being than those of the sheep. These aren't necessarily false teachers. They're not the same as the thieves and the, and the robbers. Not the same as the strangers. But obviously, as you read this, they are spineless. When the care of the flock of God is, when it's not too difficult, when it's not too dangerous, they're willing to work, they're willing to get paid. But when this hired hand sees a wolf coming... When there is danger to himself, I like how D.A. Carson puts it, he says, he retires forthwith and abandons the sheep to their own devices. He runs away. Here's where we have to be careful. Over the centuries, um, as you look at, this is one of the most famous passages of Jesus' teaching, uh, all, all of John 10 really, but especially these first 18 verses, Over the centuries, preachers and Bible teachers have taught that the hirelings and the wolf here uh, from these verses, that they're all kinds of different enemies of Christ. They have said that the wolf is the devil himself, and that certainly might be true. Um, They have said that the hirelings are the pope, or that the wolf is a pope, or that the hirelings are various bishops throughout history, or various whoever. But Jesus' intention is, for not, is not for us to determine just exactly who he is talking about when he says this. His intention is to draw attention to his very unique connection to the sheep. His very unique relationship with the sheep. Because when it boils down to it, let's face it. As a pastor, as an under-shepherd, I'm a hireling. There are times when I need to do, and I do, what is best for me, (laughs) for my family, for my wife, for my health. This is why, for example, there are times that I don't answer text messages. Um, 
But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is not like that. And that's what we're supposed to see here. Jesus is not just a hired hand. He's not a thief. He's not a robber. He's not a stranger. He's not a wolf. He's the good shepherd. He's not a hired hand. He doesn't leave his phone on the nightstand when he goes on vacation. To use kind of a lame analogy, that's what I do. The good shepherd knows, and he cares, and he sacrifices. But we need to make one more kind of exegetical step before we get there. Because before he says, I'm the good shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. I am For the fourth out of seven times in John's gospel, Jesus directly claims Yahweh, the Lord, as his own identity. Again, in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, God says of himself, I have read this every time he says this because we need to understand this, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God says of himself, the Lord, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. That's me is what he's saying. It's fascinating that one of the most common refrains um, that we hear these days is Jesus never claimed to be God. He did over and over and over again, and the Pharisees understood that. They knew what he was talking about. Jesus claimed seven times, just in these seven I am statements, just seven times in John's gospel, to be the Lord. And the Pharisees did not misunderstand, and it was one of the reasons why they sought to kill him. Now, with this statement, I am the good shepherd, Jesus is going to expand now on some some ideas that he brought up in verses 2, 3, and 4 in the allegory. And regardless of who anyone else is in this allegory, it should be very clear that Jesus himself is the shepherd. So so listen to that part of the allegory again. Uh, So back up in verse 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, that is the shepherd, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his, the shepherd's voice. And he, the shepherd, calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he, the shepherd, has brought out all his own, he, the shepherd, goes before them. And the sheep follow the shepherd, for they know the shepherd's voice. I am the good shepherd, he says. I am the good shepherd. So three um, observations this morning. I don't know if we're going to get through all three of these. But three observations this morning. And the first one is, he is good. He's good. It doesn't say good in in the allegory. It just talks about a shepherd. And now he says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. We're going to spend the bulk of our time and the rest of our time on this one. Because I think it's important for us to see this. I think that this is the most important truth for us to comprehend here this morning. And that is that he is good. He is good. Now, as a descriptor, as an adjective or a modifier, good 
is boring. If you were rating an, an English paper and your student used good to describe whatever it was that they were writing about, probably you'd circle it in red pen and, and tell them to use a different, more descriptive word. What do you mean by good? Acceptable. Superb. Top-notch. Or maybe, maybe you mean admirable. Respectable. Maybe good means exemplary or worthy or upright. Maybe you mean able or, or satisfactory or useful or qualified. There are hundreds of synonyms for the word good because on its own, the word good has an incredible range of usage. So here's what I mean. You can read a good book and you know exactly what I'm talking about when I say you can read a good book. Here's another one that you know. You can eat a good sandwich. Different kind of good, but still good. You could be a good student. Different kind of good. You can have good kids. You can have a good marriage. We have a good shepherd. In other places in John's gospel, Jesus is said to be true. The true vine. The true manna from heaven. And in that case, true means genuine. It means the real thing. It means that the, uh, that the, the other manna from heaven was just a type. It was just a, a symbol. It was just a, an arrow pointing at the true manna from heaven, Jesus. But this is different than that. Here, Jesus is not just simply the genuine shepherd. He is. He is the true shepherd. But he says he's the opposite of the, of the thieves, He's the opposite of the robbers. He's the opposite of the strangers. He's even the opposite of the hired hands. He's the opposite of the the wolves. In fact, he's the opposite of the worthless shepherds that are described all over the Old Testament. Zechariah 11, 17. "Woe Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his right eye utterly blinded. But he is good. Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew, or Mark chapter 10, verse 18. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father alone. Actually, he said, no one is good except God alone. And there he was questioning this man. Because he saw Jesus as merely a a good teacher. That's how he had addressed him. Good teacher. Why do you call me good? Jesus is so much more than, than that. He is so much more than just a good teacher. He's the second person of the Trinity. And he is goodness inherently. Jesus is goodness personified. So what is it here that makes Jesus good? We have to begin with the, the fact that he knows and he is known. He tells us that in verses 14 and 15. So John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And just stop right there. He knows and is known. This is an obvious tie back to verses 3 and 4 when the sheep hear his voice and follow him. The good shepherd, this good shepherd here, he stands in direct opposition to the hired hand who who runs away at the first sign of danger. The good shepherd here is personally connected with the sheep. He knows the sheep and the sheep know him. 
He's more than just simply concerned with the sheep. He's intimately involved with their lives. He stays. He doesn't run. So think of that imagery that Jesus is using, that of a shepherd and his sheep. The shepherd spends his days making sure that newborn sheep are fed and otherwise cared for, right? A shepherd sees to it that sick sheep are are tended to in in one way or another. I don't have to tell you because we live in a rural area and many of you have raised farm animals to a certain extent or one extent or another. So you know that it can be difficult. Shepherding or raising animals can be dirty, back-breaking work. And sometimes, especially in the Middle East, especially in ancient days, although even today, it could be dangerous. It could be risky. Still is risky financially. And so a shepherd pours his whole life into his sheep. And as a result of all of this, the shepherd knows his sheep. The shepherd knows which sheep are prone to wander off. He knows which ones are bullies. He knows which ones are weaklings. He knows which ones are not that smart and require some special care. He knows which ones are a little too smart for their own good and require a little bit of humbling. He knows you. He knows your names. He knows your families. There is not one thing that even, about even the least and the lowest of the people of God that he does not know. And if you are his, if you know him, it is because he has revealed himself to you in his word. And as Paul writes, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He has shown himself to you. Think of this for a moment. The world may not know you. The world may not recognize you. If they do, they may call you foolish. But the good shepherd knows you. And the good shepherd does not despise you. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples as he's sending them out to preach for one of the first times that they go out on their own. He he tells them in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 to 32, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I'm sure you're familiar with this image. He says, And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. That's the word. Fear not. Therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. He said this to his disciples. Is this not true for any of God's, any of the good shepherd's sheep? How about when David sang... Even of his own repentance, in Psalm 51, he sings, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, a repentant heart. O God, you will not despise. You will not despise. Do you know why? Because he cares. This is what makes him good here. Because not only does he know and is known, he's not like the hired hands of verse 13 who care nothing for the sheep. The good shepherd is the opposite of that. Now, I don't want you to think um, that because a moment ago I called myself a hired hand, I don't want you to think that means that I don't care. 
but I am nothing like Jesus. I am nothing like Jesus. No pastor can be. Not in the way that Jesus cares. The good shepherd cares for his people. He he provides for them water that wells up to eternal life. We saw that back in chapter 4. He provides the bread of life for his people. He gives them rivers of living water. He gives them abundant life. He makes them lie down in green pastures, all, all while we wander around in the wilderness of this world. He leads his people to cities of refuge. J.C. Ryle, um, he says he, he bears patiently with their many weaknesses and infirmities and does not cast them off because they are wayward, erring, sick, footsore, or lame. He guards and protects them against all their enemies as Jacob did the flock of Laban. And as those of the Father has given him, they will be found at last to have lo- he will be found at last to have lost none. Here's the evidence that the shepherd is good. It is seen in his kindness. Not only does he know us, but he also cares about us and he is kind. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36, he teaches, Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And that kindness brings our ungrateful and our evil souls to salvation. And here he tells us how. It's because he sacrifices. He sacrifices. The shepherd is good because he lays down his life for the sheep. The shepherd is good because he sacrifices. He says this actually four or five times in this passage. At the end of verse 11... He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says it again at the end of verse 15. I lay down my life for the sheep. End of verse 17. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. He lays down his life for the sheep. They didn't understand this. This went right over their heads. But this is clearly a prophecy about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Both. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He lays down his life for the sheep. Now now next week I want to pick up here on this word for. For the sheep. Because it's it's very meaningful. That little word is incredibly deep and meaningful there. And so we will talk about that next week. But for this morning, as as we have proclaimed the Lord's death through the supper, uh, through the cup and the bread, we need to remember, we need to trust that the fullest expression of of the kindness and the goodness and the omniscience and the omnipotence and the care and the sacrifice of our God is seen in Christ alone. And it's right here in this statement. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Isaac Watts wrote another hymn. Uh Number 113 in your hymnal. I just found this on Friday night as I was putting the sermon together and studying. Maybe we can sing it next week. Um, 
I don't read music, so I had no idea what the tune was, and so I looked it up on YouTube like everybody like me does, I guess. The name of the hymn is Join All the Glorious Names. The tune is actually Rejoice the Lord is King. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew that angels ever bore. All are too weak to speak his worth, too poor to set my Savior forth. Great prophet of my God, my tongue would bless thy name. By thee the joyful news of our salvation came. The joyful news of sins forgiven, of hell subdued and peace with heaven. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone and now it pleads before the throne. His powerful blood did once atone and now it pleads before the throne. Thou art my counselor, my pattern, and my guide, and thou my shepherd art. O keep me near thy side, nor let my feet e'er turn astray to wander in the crooked way. My Savior and my Lord, my conqueror and my King, thy scepter and thy sword, thy reigning grace I sing. Thine is the power. Behold, I sit in willing bonds beneath thy feet. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And our response today is this. Behold your God. Behold your God. Pray with me. As we reflect, Father, on these words of Christ, I am the good shepherd. We've only scratched the surface. We've only scratched the surface of Jesus' goodness. We've only, we've only caught a glimpse of your grace and your mercy. Oh, Father, we ask that you would make us lie down in green pastures beside still waters. That you would remind us that we, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as a child who is home, safe, at pasture. That we may go in and out, secure, knowing that Jesus is our good shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.